Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxell, and this is officially the last episode of 2020, which is, of course, my holiday spectacular episode, and I couldn't be more excited about it. My guest this week is Brian Ringley. Brian is the construction technology manager at Boston Dynamics, and he works very closely with construction customers that use the Spot robot. You've probably seen Spot if you've gone to a conference, definitely online. It's the yellow four-legged robot that everybody is scared to death of and also thinks is very, very cute. So a bit of a warning, this is going to be the longest episode intro of the year because there are so many things we did not have the opportunity to get into this holiday spectacular. So before we get to the conversation, there's actually a couple of things that have recently happened in the Boston Dynamics world since we recorded this conversation. So first off, some very interesting news hit the internet this last week in which Hyundai is officially purchasing a controlling stake in Boston Dynamics. That stake is at about 80%. They're buying it from SoftBank in a deal that values Boston Dynamics at about $1.1 billion. Hyundai says that this investment will help its development of service and logistics robots, but that over time it hopes to build more humanoid robots for jobs like caregiving for patients at hospitals. Other areas of interest include autonomous driving and smart factories. And just for a little bit of history, previous to SoftBank, Boston Dynamics was under the Google umbrella. So what started out at MIT went through Google... SoftBank, now at Hyundai, which is really interesting. Number two interesting thing that happened since we've recorded this episode was that Brian wrote an article over at Architect Magazine, which I've linked to in the show notes along with that Boston Dynamics announcement, and it is well worth reading. I would like to spend a few minutes right now on the article to provide some context and insight surrounding our conversation that you're about to listen to. So the article is titled Beyond the Master Builder, How Robots Can Really Transform the Role of the Architect. And like I said, Brian wrote this article, and he sees invaluable opportunities for robotics that have little to do with automating building construction and installation. In the article, he begins with a few salient quotes, and I'm going to kind of rattle some off here real quick, again, just to provide some context for what we eventually get to in the conversation. Automation and robotics already exist within the discipline, but they have manifested differently than what people typically envision. Another point is that BIM has failed to empower architects with significant control over the building delivery process, and building information modeling has been steadily automating aspects of architectural design for years. Despite its impact on daily design and documentation tasks, BIM has failed to empower architects with significant control over the building delivery process. The conversation from which architects should not want to be excluded then becomes, how can we more effectively apply automation and robotic technologies that exist today in a transformative manner for project delivery and revenue generation? He then goes on to talk about the fixation on returning to the ideal of the, quote, master builder and the problems baked into that way of thinking. So once again, I'm just going to pull a few of my highlighted things from the article that I thought really drove that point home. First, architects, or some subset of them, have a fixation for the direct control of construction tasks, bypassing tradespeople as a means to reclaim, quote, craftsmanship. I think that that is really interesting. 
He explains that the rather obvious infeasibility of implementing this approach in today's risk-averse and siloed design bid-build delivery model, and that the AIA contracts strictly prohibit architects from engaging in means and methods. To finish up this section about the mythos of the master builder, Brian states that model-driven delivery methods are premised on the notion that the intelligence required for the delivery of a building is holistically contained within the design model, when in fact much of the intelligence required for construction of a building comes from the tradespeople on site. Pretty hard to bypass that, right? So if you've ever built anything yourself, you know this is in fact a rather large truth bomb that Brian just dropped in that article. And that's just the beginning. He gets into how agile mobile robotics, which he says are the missing piece in an automated field data tech stack, can actually help bridge the data and communication gaps between the silo disciplines we find ourselves operating within by our own willingness and doing. Overall, this article is a great gut check, laying out the inviolable, look it up, requirements that set forth with our guidance and involvement an aversion to risk that we must now deal with at a very structural level within our profession. And finally, here's a pointed quote about using this technology as a compelling opportunity to leverage expertise and have it go beyond one project just for good measure. Brian says, quote, All too often, architects, in a fugue of deadline-induced haste, contractual impotence, slim margins, and the manifold layers of real estate market abstraction from end tenants, move from project to project with no real sense of whether their product works. As a result, they gain no insight to apply to the next product iteration, unquote. So this is arguably what on-site agile mobile robotics can help accomplish by bridging the gap between architects and tradespeople to gain that which they lack, which is insight. This episode is a fantastic conversation about how Brian got where he is and became who he is. We talked about the ability to, in true Steve Jobs fashion, easily have the ability to connect the dots looking backward when in fact no one could then have predicted the outcomes we now see. And if you follow Brian on Twitter, you know his dry humor and comedic tendencies, and you also know he's, dare I say, a true treasure of our profession. That's for you, Brian. I mean that. I couldn't think of a better guest for the first Troxel holiday spectacular, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian Ringley of Boston Robotics. How you doing? Oh, good. Really, really busy and frantic, but good. Yeah, how about you? Uh, yeah, I, similar, I think. Trying to find <laughs> moments of the day for peace is hard. I appreciate you taking the time today. I, I don't really know what what this holiday spectacular is going to lead to. I, I do have a fresh <laughs> cup of coffee. Like maybe it doesn't, doesn't get any more spectacular than that. Also check out this coffee cup. That's rad. Yeah. Is that an Apple two GS? I don't, I mean, it, it looks like one, but it's a clearly like somebody had their own like computer business. Yes. that was called <laughs> digitals, which, which I love it. That's the his name. Belongs to digital. That's Digital's his name. Personal computers. Digital. Yeah. Says, I digital. love that guy. <laughs> Good, good garage sale find. Yeah, I love how much like space there is between the ten key and those other. You know, <laughs> there's a lot. That's a wide it's, keyboard. It is a stretched image for sure. That's awesome. I that, was trying to remember. I was like, were computers that long? They were pretty like deep. Don't, that, don't fully remember. That is a great garage sale find, man. That's awesome. Yeah, my my mug just. Here, here's mine. This is, and what sucks is like because I'm right-handed. All you see is this stupid Starbucks logo. But 
there is a nice Vespa on the other side, so I must drink. That's true. Do they favor? Is the idea that the the graphic on the mug favors like facing the person drinking from it? Yeah, this is this is pre-COVID, right? Like I'm I'm enjoying this cup of coffee, but now like. now that we're on camera all the time like you must see what like my brand affiliations or that's right or yeah. whatnot yeah it's all about it's all about being an influencer with these brands you know my coffee mug brands <laughs> yeah when is when is coffee mug art going to catch up with the with the era of of zoom <laughs> yeah yeah there does need to be like i need a multi-cam setup here so that i can quickly switch and, and even go slow-mo on the fly, right? So you can see like, it's like a real commercial, right? When when they're eating cereal off the spoon and it's like in 120 frames a second, it's, <laughs> we need that ability here. I'm, I'm trying to push my firm into like going beyond just this 15 inch screen and like think about what else you can do with, with a production. So, so I think we're onto something here with this. Yeah, you should have a, you have a few spots walking around filming you at all times. Maybe a drone swarm. <laughs> I do need like a drone swarm in the background with a light display that, yeah, fully animated. Yeah, this is all, that would be. This this is a podcast all about ideas, but but that's where it ends. We're just <laughs> even, I'm, even bad ones. I'm just the idea guy. Like you're gonna have to run with that. <laughs> I think the first time that I went to one of your was like an AU class that oh my goodness you had one of those slides on the screen that had all the diagonal lines connecting all the tools together right like it was it was a spider web of how to get it it was the 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 topic that won't will not die interoperability right yeah I know <laughs> it's the state of the art forever yeah yeah and I mean it's it's hilarious because like at one point I put together this cheat sheet of you know, how to get files from one app to another. And that was obviously not interoperability. That's just file exchange. And yeah. uh, and that was a very popular document for quite a while. But that that was also like, the files are dead. You, you must reload the files or delete and, and re-import. Yeah, I love it. It's like such a, such a kind of like annoyance and, and persisting problem in the industry. And then like the one company that kind of latched onto that and and made a fully featured product for it promptly, you know, disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> so, so clearly not an actual business need, just a <laughs> nice to have. Yeah. It's like and something we love to talk about. It's like, wait, nauseum. I'm pretty sure this is the thing that all you care about. And now you're telling me you don't want it because you're not, you're not willing to buy it. That was interesting. If you could get your file from Rhino into Revit more quickly. We would solve all of the business problems of architecture. Yeah, right. <laughs> Turns out that might not be true. <laughs> now we just sit here quietly. Crickets. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, and there are also like some really good tools out there that do that for free or next to free. And guess what? There's at least one person in every, you know, large enough firm who could build something like that for you. So yeah, the value proposition kind of goes out the window. Yeah. It's a classic example of focusing or being distracted by technology problems which are don't really seem to be at the root of what ails you know architectural practice at least from a business standpoint yeah i think you in one of the interviews that you've done recently where you said that you know turns out automating drawing sets the the building of drawing sets from a 3d model isn't going to solve your business problems yeah that's not a new business model that's just the same business model you actually have to yeah it's go way beyond that 
I mean, it's a it's a much needed automation of a task, but um, right, it's not a fundamental rethinking of delivery. That's for sure. Well, Brian, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, are we, are we doing the podcast? <laughs> let's call it. Let's call it the podcast. And so it's great to have you here. And I think that the stuff that you're talking about is the things that a lot of well, let's not say a lot. Let's say a, a, a percentage of people are thinking about in their firms, but maybe we can go back. I think your path is extremely interesting. And I think a lot of people kind of, and this is just me speculating, but I think a lot of people live vicariously through the work that you've done because they see where you've gone, where, where you've come from, where you've gone to now at Boston Dynamics. And it's like how it's easy to connect the dots going backwards. It's really difficult to connect <laughs> sure. the dots going forward, right? So yeah. maybe maybe that that would be an interesting story maybe to start with. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to try to post-rationalize and say that I, you know, planned this, but... Um, Mastermind. And, and find, yeah, and find the common threads, which which there are a few, but uh, it was pretty organic. You know, I was educated as an architect. I wanted to be a designer. I liked technology and was familiar with it of course as part of the education but it wasn't a big part of how i conceived of doing the work but the recession hit when i graduated so um i needed to find something else to do other than go into practice that's what got me started in academic labs and teaching so real quick you got an mark right so what what did you I do did, bef- yeah. what did you do before that before the mark yeah oh i <laughs> nothing okay um i sorry, straight to my, a master's degree <laughs> obligatory cat appearance by the way nice. um that's going to be happening on and off. Yeah. Um, well, and this, no, just so, so you know, this won't be video shared. So you'll have to make a cat sound now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll, he's pretty talkative. We'll see. All see right. if we can get some, some audio. I should have mic'd him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I went, when I went into architecture school, I went into an architecture program in undergrad at Cincinnati. Okay. And, you know, my idea at the time was like, I just want to get into professional practice as quickly as I can. So I'm going to do my undergrad and my graduate degree kind of all in one run. Okay. I did it all in six years. Uh, I guess I was like, you know, it's like you're in a hurry to die, I guess, and not enjoy the moment. It was not very (laughs) Buddhist. Um, (laughs) But that was the mentality at the time. So I went to Cincinnati for undergrad and then got a really nice, um, being rejected by all the Ivy League schools I wanted to go to. I got a really nice package at Cincinnati where I actually got to work in what was called the Rapid Prototyping Lab at their design school. And I really kind of lucked out in a couple ways. One is I had amazing studio professors. Uh, It was an era where we had like a visiting professor program. So I had like Carl Dobman and Craig Borum from from Taubman. Uh, I had Aaron Betsky and we like helped brainstorm for the Biennale that year in Venice. So it was a really great time to be in the school and I think it's a great school. But I had this opportunity to work in the rapid prototyping lab, which was like a college-wide facility. Uh, but at the time, there weren't really a lot of architects or interior design students accessing it. It, was, it had really been established in the early 90s for automotive design and product design, which was a fantastic education in terms of like product design, prototyping, and design for manufacturing. So most of the time I was like, you know, prototyping like electric bicycles and like cars and uh, power tools and things like that. It wasn't very architectural per se. Was the architecture program still really dependent on like the wood shop at that point? Or yes. was, it, was yeah. it 3D printing? and? 
I mean, the architecture program at that point was like discovering the laser cutter and yeah. some piecemeal 3D printing, but it wasn't it wasn't particularly emphasized. You know, some of the some of the instructors kind of saw the importance of of tying that in. I mean, making was important. You know that that wasn't lost on anyone. But you know, a case in point, like I had wanted to learn Maya yeah. when I was in grad school, and there were no courses for it at the time really so i was like taking courses again an advantage of being in a multidisciplinary program i was taking courses in the digital design program you know with now looking back you know some professor giving me their free time which is amazing um so i got to like learn other disciplines and kind of figure out how to tie that back into like an architectural design and and delivery process and was definitely talking with architecture and interior design faculty and even urban design, um, while I was working in the lab as a student, you know, just because it was like, hey, you know, why not bring architecture students in here? So when I was in a studio with um, Carl and Craig, who, you know, were jointly at Ply at the time, they were like, wow, you have this incredible facility with all of these CNC machines, like, we're gonna, we're gonna use that, and we're going to digitally fabricate molds for the purposes of, you know, a hypothetical refurbishment of a, of a building in Detroit. So so that was super cool. And that kind of opened my eyes. Um, and there was this kind of aha moment because I was looking at some of the work at some other Michigan professors and Glenn Wilcox in particular had put out a series of tutorials for how to extract, you know, isocurves and other curvature from, from Rhino surfaces and use those to directly drive a CNC machine. And I was kind of looking at that in the context of this studio work. And that was like an aha moment. Like that was my original, like, oh, you can use a machine to drive some act of making. And that's really powerful because I, I design in a model. So yeah. if I design in a model and I can use that model information to directly control the way that my design is, is produced in the real world, that's a really powerful idea. Yeah. We had a, a three axis CNC machine at, at this one interior architecture firm that I worked at. And I never was, it it was always a handoff from like the design, which is where I worked to the people who made all the tool paths. And then it it went down to the floor, but we did it all in one facility, but it was very much like a a handoff from one to the other. It sounds like you were pretty interested in that, the transformation of the design intent into what drove the machine. Like, so you wanted to, to learn how to do that. I was, and I think that's kind of the thread that binds a lot of my career. I have a lot of serious questions about that mentality. I'm actually working on an article about that right now where I question some of the intent there. But before we jump cut to yeah. that, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was an interesting moment. And, you know, I had, you know, first of all, there were kind of a few things. Uh, again, like it was an organic evolution. Like I was doing an internship with Francois Roche in Paris, um, you know, your classic, like, unpaid graduate internship at some, like, radical boutique firm. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting experience because I had this idea that it was this very, like, kind of techno-centric design process based on the work I had seen exhibited of, of their practice. And it was actually this really bizarre kind of hybrid workflow like there was a lot of clay sculpting 
I actually think the basement of this firm was a former sweatshop, which is very appropriate for yeah. myself and the and the other European. <laughs> Turns out it still there. was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like me and like three interns from like Aarhus or something. But you know, we were, you know, doing a lot of like clay sculpting to get like that right kind of, I don't know, almost like grotesque or handcrafted or or, or, or look. It was, and then running that through, uh, you know, digitizing processes. Um, so uh, we were using like a CMM and collecting points. So you basically like model yeah. something in clay and then mm-hmm. you use like an X-Acto knife or, or thin tape and you trace the ISO curves and figure out how ultimately how like the topology of this thing you made with your hand would become a NURB surface. You'd, you'd basically digitize that in point by point, span those with ISO curves, create your surfaces and recreate your surfaces like 10,000 times until yeah. they're nice and like milky smooth. And then at the time, Francois was working with Mark Fornes, um, who is a very like prolific kind of like scripter and architect and, and installation artist. And then like he would send scripts back and forth. This was like VB.net era for Rhino script. And we would populate these surfaces with different skins. And then inevitably it would look too much like scripted work. And then we'd make the skins by hand and then bring it. So it was this really interesting education in kind of understanding the mixing of of handcraft and the and the digital something now that i think we would probably like loosely call like post-digital craft in in a lot of graduate schools but you know i did it first in paris i'm oh, just kidding <laughs> um but you know it's not it's not a super new idea and i took that back you know the reason i brought up that internship is because we hit vacances which is you know whenever when no one in in france works the entire month of of august and i was like well i'm not making any money here that's for sure um uh, and i probably shouldn't spend too much more of my federal loan money um in europe so i went back to cincinnati early and asked if i could start my work at the rpc earlier and the reason why this was pivotal was because it was the only time i was working 40 hours a week doing the cnc work so i really became you know, like a CNC programmer. This is your 10,000 hours, machinist. right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like, and there were scary moments like snapping tools and breaking oh, machines yeah. and, and, and things like that. But, you know, I was really able to immerse myself in what was very, a very professionally run machine shop. It wasn't a usual academic lab where the students do the work. Like uh-huh. we were, we were professionals who did the work for the students. You were a service designs. bureau. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you know, that, that combined with, you know, what I had experienced with the the studio with Michigan and then the kind of revelation of Glenn Wilcox, I started teaching myself. So when I, when it became clear that I wasn't going to get a job in practice, I was like, can I continue to work in this lab, but can I be kind of a liaison for getting the architecture interior design or urban design programs in here, which, which I did, I was able to make that job. Um, and it led to all sorts of other cool things. Like I got the engineering program in there. We started working with like fashion design and graphic design. I mean, it truly became multidisciplinary and really remains that way today through the efforts of, you know, the manager, Scott Lincoln, and and the rest of the staff there. And Anton Harfman, who was the dean at the time, everyone really bought in to that vision, which was like, this is a world-class resource. It should be, you know, a place to share ideas amongst all of the design disciplines. And so I was working there doing that job, and I was also picking up some, some seminars and I was teaching this like hilarious class where we were like painstakingly extracting isocurves manually in Rhino. And like, it, it was bizarre. 
there are probably some old tutorials somewhere on the internet, but it was like, it was very laborious for, yeah. yeah, for digital work. And there was a lecture by um, Future Cities Lab and Natalie Gatenio, who's, you know, an architect and educator, actually did a personal like review of my course, which is awesome. It's always cool to get like the critique of the critique. Um, and she was like, why aren't you using, uh, I believe her word was like parametricize or something, but just basically, why aren't you using parametric design or, or what we call like you're design like, computation? You're like, now. what? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Because I had used Grasshopper like briefly when it first came out in 2008 as explicit history when I was in Paris, actually. And I was like, this is horrible. Um, there weren't even data trees yet, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, this looks hard, right? It's the same way I yeah, felt right. when I opened Revit or Generative Components or all these, or Maya, where I was just like, oh boy, this is going to, this is going to be terrible. Um, but. But she said that, and I was like, okay, you know, point taken. And then the students started a petition, which is kind of awesome, demanding that someone in the design school teach Grasshopper. Wow. Um, and then, uh, I don't remember who, like the head of the graduate program or something came to me and was like, well, you're, you know, to paraphrase, well, you're the young, low-paid adjuncts, like, who knows about <laughs> computers, so you do this. So wow. I was like, okay. So I taught myself Grasshopper in um, in a coffee shop on Main Street in downtown Cincinnati every night after work. Um, I was really bad at it for, like, probably, like, a good two years. Even when I was first teaching it, I was so bad at it. Um, but that's how it goes. Uh, so we started using those methods to, like, you know, all right, now we can have this be like rule driven and parameter driven. We can actually take this a lot further, introduce, you know, eventually when I started teaching at Pratt, you know, we'd introduce actual data, like let's run a structural analysis or environmental analysis and use that data to kind of drive what we're doing with manufacturing operations. But at the time it was like purely ornamental. Um, the Dean of, of DAP, uh, I think Robert Probst at the time may still be, I don't know if he's doing that now. Um, actually bought one of the pieces off the students. So that's like a point of pride for me as they're like selling their work, but created these really beautiful, like four foot by four foot by like six inch thick, like glued up Baltic birch um, pieces uh, with our incredible uh, Como CNC router in the basement, which is like a five foot by 10 foot by like two foot deep router. Um, It was awesome. Um, And ran those seminars for a few years and that's when that's kind of when i first connected like not just like oh i can use the digital model but also i can leverage something we we now call you know we, we have words for all these things now we now call computational fabrication which is to to use those design computation methods to create a kind of more direct relationship between the model and the manufacturing and then as i said by the time i got to pratt and had learned a bit more through my teaching at CUNY as well. You know, how do you actually get some analysis into that so that your the, your work was was performing in some way, right? You could kind of measure the success of what you manufactured. So let's let's pause there for a second. I I want to go down this little rabbit hole first and, and nerd out for a second because you are you're such a curious person. You obviously weren't satisfied with the tools that they were talking about in the architecture department. You were interested in Maya. Maya is a visual effects piece of software. It's all kind of always has been subdivision surface modeling for the most part. Like you, you were able to bridge the gap of the vocabulary for one, but the concepts for two, because you 
went that route because when you're using subdivision surfaces, it's all about topology and you're retopologizing all the time because you want to get the surface to do what you want it to do. And it's, it's all about those, those quads. It's all about kind of going through and redesigning it so that the surface works. And so then obviously translating that into NURBS, getting into the, the organic side of things, which is very much not what we were taught in the nineties in school. It, there was no, like you rarely saw anything organic at that time. Still, it seems to me like because of your curiosity in these and in, in going outside of the traditional toolbox of architecture, I remember going to like SIGGRAPH in the nineties and seeing Bob and Scott at the Rhino booth, which was like two guys in a table. It was nothing. Right. <laughs> and, and it was, and they were showing like car fenders right in, in the software with the zebra stripes on them, showing the continuity of the surface. And it was like, yeah. and I'm an architect. I'm like, that's cool, but I'm going to go to the form Z booth. Right. Like it was, it was very <laughs> like, it was another world. It was very much like auto and boats and, and things like that in the Rhino world back then. But it's interesting to and see Form-Z now had the stair tool. Yes. Form Z yeah. had a couple of architectural and the tools. System beep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so like because of that curiosity that you had, I mean, Rhino's not in the, wasn't in the toolbox back then. Grasshopper most definitely wasn't in the toolbox, right? Like it it just didn't it wasn't it there. And then and then you didn't have you had the Maya, which was not in the toolbox. And you're you're then going kind of reverse going back through the machine and and ultimately this all kind of leads back to architecture and and even now where you are with robotics but man like what a crazy crazy journey and and it's i think it's only through that curiosity that you actually start to make these really weird connections and opportunities yeah and you know not to spend the entire podcast talking about my college years but um (laughs) that 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 was the the agenda item number one yeah the weird the weird thing about that was i had actually been using rhino before college so purely coincidentally like i went to an okay school i went to a school called ontario high school in like mansfield ohio graduating class of like 144 very like small farm school but they had a very like kind of vocation heavy curriculum which included like drafting and 3d modeling and carpentry and just by virtue of the teacher bruce wyrick being involved with rhino somehow early on like our high school was like a regional like rhino training center for other wow. people who wanted to teach rhino so i had used rhino since i was 14 i've used it since i was 14 years old that's amazing uh and uh that means that now i've used it a lot longer than i haven't across the course of my life at this point um so i am at least 28 is, yep. there's your clue um yep. and so i got to architecture school and, you know, at the time, it was just like, yeah, whatever, this is 3D modeling software, and I learned it, cool. And then I go to college, and I'm like, I'm ready to learn architecture software. And that was presented to me as a FormZ on a MacBook, um, which is like, what a weird combination, yep. um, with a physical license dongle and the aforementioned system beep. Um, I just remember being in the lab with all of us modeling and FormZ. And all the beeps. Like, yep. Whoop. So many beeps. <laughs> you also had to like click like three buttons to do anything. You could yeah. write a paper on like the weirdness of that software, which is very popular. Um, and I just thought that was architecture software. I was like, okay, this is what architects do. Um, I, I didn't know any better. And then, and then like by junior year, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to start using Rhino again. Like, I think I'm going to, and also I think I'm going to start using Windows again. 
and like uh you know just because i was educated with with these work sets doesn't mean that this is like the only way to to think about how to design and and model but then you know to some of the points you're making it over time it was important to me to learn a lot of different types of of software you know like poly modeling or, or sub d modeling or nerbs modeling to understand you know what are the kind of like topologic methods there like in terms of but, but like what what data do the surfaces contain i was really interested in the work of of greg lynn at the time who was like you know all about those nerves and you know a lot of his work was like there's a ton of embedded information in a mathematically defined surface and how does that make us think differently about the surfaces we produce in the physical world how do we embed information both in the kind of digital design model as well as the as well as the physical result and also leverage digital fabrication to kind of connect the two and uh one of the let's see michael mcinturf had worked with greg lynn on the um on the oh my gosh church in queens like the korean church in queens which is like a seminal like blob building and then michael mcinturf was teaching at cincinnati along with greg lewis and they were both offering this there was one maya course and they would teach this kind of like how to design and produce form through animation. And then we would like 3D print it because the nice thing about like a, a poly model is if you start with like a, a, you know, watertight manifold primitive, if you don't go too crazy, it's going to stay watertight. And right. It lends itself well to additive in the same way that mm. a NURB surface with the ISO curve information lends itself really well to driving highly precise um, CNC machining. Yeah operation so for me it was important to be like oh okay like these different modeling types have different affordances in terms of how that data can be communicated downstream to some to some means of production which is very different than drawings right like that that to me is is super interesting because you you're talking about the stuff that greg lynn is talking about like what's embedded in the surface how does that make us think differently about the surface knowing that you know you want to fabricate that surface is very different than the information you would put into two-dimensional drawings as, a, as an architect typically thinks, and therefore you model differently because of the outcome, which people still have a really hard time kind of wrapping their heads around, whether it's 3D printing or CNC or whatever. Yeah. And I have, again, I have a very perverse relationship to all of these things. I have this conversation a lot with, with Andrew Human, who I've worked with at a couple of places, and um, I think you've interviewed him, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I definitely listened to that one. Uh-huh. I promise. Yeah. Andrew, um, <laughs> Andrew's listening and he's listening to this one, right? So <laughs> better. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've had a lot of talks about this, like what, what does it really mean to draw? Because we do tend to create this with all due respect to, you know, people who are good at drawing, people who think they're drawing, people who think they're modeling, blah, blah, blah. It, it has to do with this kind of uh, how quickly something can move from your brain to, mm. to manifest itself somewhere. And, you know, the intermediary device of a mouse or a keyboard or even a screen can, of course, stunt that, but it doesn't doesn't really have to be that way. There can be an immediacy to a digital native, I think, to thinking through Rhino. So again, I, I was a weirdo. Um, I hated drawing. I um, painstakingly learned how to like shade a drawing that looked like fairly realistic of a person freshman year and then said, okay, cool, check. I never want to do that again. Um, I had <laughs> lots of friends. I mean, like I had a colleague named, you know, 
Brett Albert, like who's an incredibly talented drawer and painter who went to school with me, went on to the GSD, uh, was an animator for Walt Disney. I was exposed to that, but uh, I was just never particularly good at it. But I had, I had been modeling in NURBS since, again, since I was like 14. So like that just made more sense to me. So mm-hmm. I was always sketching in Rhino. The, like, the first thing I'd do if I had a design idea was like think about it in three-dimensional space. Think about it like in terms of like a perspectival like viewport that I'm spinning around. Mm-hmm. And I would do all of my sketching and, and all of my work in there. Um, I had a really interesting studio at one point in grad school taught by... Was it grad school? No, grad doesn't matter. Uh, taught by Carl Wallach. And he... <laughs> He, he actually did a really interesting thing where we were allowed to neither draw nor model. And we spent the entire semester only physically modeling mm. a project, basically like eight feet in scale at a time. Wow. Which was a fascinating yeah. way to work and completely kind of like re-geared my mind. So there's absolutely something to the medium, mm-hmm. right? And the outcomes are all the same. Uh, ostensibly, you're trying to build a building. I guess that's arguable. A real but, thing, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. I was, I was hoping to at some point. Um, so that was that was great to to kind of balance out. You know, this experience I mentioned with Francois Roche about kind of like hybrid media and this kind of like fluid mixture of of the kind of handcraft and hand manipulation with digital methods. You know, both input and output. And then this experience where it's just like, you know, you're not even allowed to draw. Like you weren't allowed to sketch. You were allowed to mark with your pencil on the basswood so you knew where to cut it. That was the difference. Um, so that that was a really that was a really good experience too. And it definitely I think it definitely applies to this idea of, yeah, when you're in a different medium, you kind of approach it differently. And for me, that was about again the affordances of downstream digital fabrication and this design for manufacturing approach I had kind of adopted from my work with industrial and transportation design students. I I would think at some point there, like going through that course specifically is it's about kind of how, how you put things together. Right. And because you're, if you're building something for real, you've, it's not made out of one big part that you're either adding, it's not additive, it's not subtractive for the most part. It's like, taking these parts and putting them together in some way, you know, fastening them in some way, whether that's, you know, a model the size of your hands that you're using glue, or if you're using screws and nails and and whatever, you know, slots and tabs and, you know, it it just depends. But I would think that like, that's the kind of connection that most architects actually need to make so that they understand the purpose behind the thing that they're modeling on the screen, even if it's, for a machine to read at some point, somebody or something has to put that together. Yeah. Which <laughs> this is why, like I thought sub D modeling was really great when I was a student. And then it was like the bane of my existence when I was rationalizing facades at Woods Baga, mm-hmm. which was like, this does not lend itself to rationalization for the constructed environment, knowing mm-hmm. what I know about building assembly, but specific with that, that studio was, was really fun too, because you, if you just immerse yourself in kind of one one medium for a while too, you, you try to like take it to its extremes. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that I think four of us had to go to the emergency room at some point for an exacto knife wound. Three a.m. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> mine was mine is a scar on my thumb. I did have a uh, <laughs> a uh, I almost said colleague. What's it called? A you know, fellow student who was cutting toward themselves, um, Malcolm Lee, I'm going to name him by name and stabbed himself in the stomach because he was oh cutting toward himself. Yeah. So 
We also Not all used scout. Zappa. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it was probably 4 a.m., right? Yeah. Um, is you know, unhealthy environment, I'm afraid. But uh, speaking of unhealthy, also like tectonics-wise, and, and yes, there was the pleasure of detail, but there was also copious amounts of Zappagap and Zip Kicker, because who has the time to wait for Zappagap to set? Nope. Um, also, so many, you know, chemical burns and gluing things to yourself. Yeah. Um, but but it, it took us to interesting material extremes, too. I mean, one was like, all right, you know, when does it make sense to model the joint, and when does it make sense to, you know, etch it? And again, we didn't really have we didn't have free access to the laser cutter at the time. So, and our professor didn't really like the burning of the laser cutter and without going down a rabbit hole of how to mask and avoid that and the craft of laser cutting, you know, we were hand etching patterns with, yeah. with our exacto knives. And uh, I remember discovering corrugated basswood by what? going to a local doll shop oh, wow. or dollhouse shop. So they sell corrugated basswood so you can paint it white and use it as like the roof for your dollhouse. Oh, okay. And yeah. And we, and we found that in the architecture school, just like, you know, boom, we all just met at this dollhouse store and, you know, bought them out of their corrugated basswood supply. So they also went down their business plan for that year. Yeah, probably. <laughs> hopefully. I mean, it's a great shop. I hope it's still in business. Um, and then we, we also went down into the valley to like a plumbing supply shop. I got this huge sheet of lead. Um, and lead is like such a pleasure to work with. Isn't oh my it's gosh, really it satisfying. Like, yeah. Cuts like <laughs> butter. And I was like, this is my water. Like, cause you also have to one up everybody else. It's like, oh, you, you know, you're going to do, yeah. you're going to do plexi and you're going to do like a, you know, soft blue paper under plexi. And like, I'm going to do lead and I'm going to polish the lead. It's super shiny. But here's the thing about that. I knew it was toxic and I used gloves, but no one else did. So every morning I'd come in and there'd be fingerprints all over my water feature. And I was like, Oh, like I'm poisoning my <laughs> colleagues. Um, oh man. But I, but I digress. Yeah. <laughs> so many secrets being revealed here. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the school years. And then like you actually get out into the profession and it's yes. not, normal right like you said you, you kind of graduated during a recession and you were teaching and working in the this fab lab and and this is just kind of snowballed i think like lo- watching the stuff that you've done whether it's woods bagot or you know we work or boston dynamics it's you you've kind of you you went off on this path some people come back onto the you know the, the architectural path which is like yeah you know, there's lots of lanes there anyway, but, but it seems to me like you, you've just gone farther and farther down this country road that's kind of winding and you, you kind of don't know where it's going <laughs> next. So yeah, take us through a little bit of that. Yeah. I mean, so I think I was at the rapid prototyping center for about three years, um, after graduating. Um, so I stayed in Cincinnati for a while while the economy recovered, but I was like, I was so dead set on living in New York. I had, I had done an internship there working for KPF um, and just like, that's always where I wanted to live. Um, And I'm still here uh, Mm -hmm. for the time being. So uh, I got an opportunity to uh, go to city tech and city tech is an architectural technology program or was at the time. I think they're trying to evolve now, Um, but it was differentiated from uh, the, city college school of architecture um 
which was in Manhattan, uh, because it was really focused on technology and alternative career paths. And that was really compelling to me, this idea that you didn't, first of all, you didn't have to be kind of encumbered by, um, you know, NCARB and accreditation and all that sort of thing. You could, you could think like, what does, you know, the, the education of an architect, I think, lends itself to all sorts of ways of, you know, um, practicing in the world, but especially when you add technology onto that. So, and when was this, was, by the way? Yeah. So this was 2012. Okay. I moved to New York in January, 2012. I remember getting out of the cab from the airport and there was snow on the ground. Um, and, Welcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. And finding, finding my out of season bed and breakfast in Ditmas park where I would stay for like three months while I found a real apartment. Um, shout out to honey's bed and breakfast. Um, so I, yeah, I was working there and the cool thing was, first of all, it was like a national science foundation grant and the grant had a lot of components to it. Um, you know, Shelly Smith and Anne Lenhart and, and the team there had worked really hard to win this massive grant for the school. And it really like fundamentally changed that school. And, um, you know, a lot of really amazing students, I think benefited from that at the time. And it was focused one, you know, what appealed to me most was like, I would get to build a fab lab from scratch. So I would get the budget and the resources to do that. Um, including my, my first robotic arm, which was like a gateway drug into yeah. robots. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can never get enough. Right. Um, and, but also in the curriculum, we were creating these certificate programs. Again, we had like all this freedom to think about what this education could be. So there were three certificate programs. One was in computational fabrication. Um, one was in uh, sustainability and building performance. Um, and then one was in BIM. Um, and pretty much like everyone I know now in New York, like kind of passed through like teaching or participating or, or giving workshops or giving lectures, you know, we had, we, we brought in practitioners on a nearly like daily basis to do guest reviews and symposia and, you know, really, really cool. wanted to show, yeah, the students like these are real technologies and like you can go work for, you know, situ, which has a fabrication shop in the Navy yard, or you can go work for the solar analysis company doing energy modeling. or You can go work for this design technology team and, and think about facades, like, or you can be an architect, right? Like, you know, whatever, whatever you want. And I think the, you know, I'll kind of brush aside. There was the whole fab lab component to it, which, you know, I think everybody kind of understands, but for me, the, the really fundamental thing that happened there was were those three certificate programs and the way in which we kind of creatively blended them. So mm -hmm. for example, there was a, a core seminar that was kind of the intro to computational fabrication where you learned about grasshoppers, TNC, 3d printing, et cetera. Um, and then there was the kind of core like uh, BIM course. And then there was a core like building analysis course. Well, all three of those courses had to work together as if they were a firm with different kind of specialized people on a team. And they had to use the analysis to, to drive the design. Um, and then they had to kind of reconcile that with an existing condition model um, in BIM. And they had to make sure all that worked together ultimately to represent their work, both kind of at the prototype and model scale, but also, um, you know, as a, as a set of deliverables um, out of Revit. So that was, and that was also like an aha moment for me too, whereas I had been super fixated on like free form geometry and modeling 
and fabrication. Um, but that's where I learned about, you know, analysis and simulation on mm-hmm. one side. Mm-hmm. And then that's where I learned about BIM on the other. I, I've tried to avoid BIM as much as I can. I find it very boring. Yeah. But it is. That's what the B is. is. That's what the B stands yeah. for. It is, it is a fundament, <laughs> fundamental part of, of everything we do. So I was, I was forced to, to start using that, would continue to use that at, at Woods Baggett. So that's where kind of this whole like simulation, analysis, design, fabrication, and documentation feedback loop. I kind of, we were, with the help of our industry partners in particular, we were able to prove that out. Shane Berger, who is one of our industry advisors, and runs the design technology team at Woods Bagot, um, then hired me. Okay. So after after that, when that grant money was running out, I was like, okay, I think the economy has recovered enough that I can get back into architecture. And that's how I got into um, practice again with, wow. with Shane at Woods Bagot. Yeah. That's crazy. And and when did you transition to Pratt in that? Was it after that? <sighs> uh, yeah, it was all kind of muddled together. It was like around the same time. I think I had set up the um, the first like little baby robot arm at City Tech, and then Pratt had just purchased a few robots to set up in their lab at the School of Architecture. Um, and I think it, it was something funny, you know, like all these things work out. Like somebody on staff had finally left <laughs> and like freed up a spot, and I had really wanted to work there because I've just always really admired the Pratt Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew a lot of other people who taught there and I had basically been like trying to teach there for a couple of years. And it's also New York. So you just work like 400 jobs at yeah. once. So it was yeah. like, I was already teaching and working, but I was like, yeah, I want to teach more. Um, and you were a winner and, and you were, yeah, was <laughs> 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 a valet. Um, uh, honestly, but, um, things were a little tough financially yeah. back then. Uh, but, um, I, I finally got into Pratt, helped set up that lab. I wrote the first industrial robotic arm course there. So now it wasn't just about making something ornamental with a machine driven by, you know, some geometry model CAD. Now, now we were actually using Grasshopper to run like structural analysis and environmental analysis on on small structures where we could test those ideas physically. Uh, with the industrial robotic arm. And the thing about the robotic arm that is, you know, there are several things that are a little bit different from working with, you know, these other types of machines is like, you know, there are these kind of like very purpose built machines like CNC machines and laser cutters and things like that. But when you have a robotic arm, you kind of have to invent everything. It's like, Mm -hmm. what is the end of arm tooling? What is the software that drives the process? Um, What is your fixture and setup? What material are you trying to manipulate and i really liked that i liked how everything was kind of modularized and flexible and you had to think through you know it was both a materials problem and kind of a materials processing and tooling problem and and you could use parametric design in ways beyond just like the design of the pavilion for example it's like you could use a genetic algorithm to optimize like the fewest types of end effectors you would need to manipulate a wide variety of panel sizes Mm. or material shapes so it became this game of like understanding the cost of variation because i think students had been sold at the time i kept talking about this myth of mass customization and i'm like that's not real everything has an expense there is no like magic there are technologies that have like made it a little bit easier to think that way but everything has an expense but if you have a thousand different panel sizes and you're CNC 
milling their edges or you're laser cutting them, you know, it's not really that much more expensive than having a bunch of identical mm-hmm. pieces if you're using that same, you know, it just becomes method. a nesting issue, right? It's like how many panels can yeah. you fit on, out of a bigger panel? Yeah. Yeah. Just like one more step in the algorithm. Who cares? It's all like compiling at the same time through mm-hmm. your, you know, grasshopper script or whatever you've set up. So no big deal. But then when you come to the robot and you have, you know, a hundred different panel sizes, it's going to be some kind of gripper problem, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we did not have machine vision at the time, which is a great solution to this problem. So we thought through it, you know, the way we were used to thinking through it, which was like optimization and, um, you know, things like Galapagos and, and similar types of tools uh, and just iterating a ton of solutions and finding the best one. Uh, K-means cluster algorithms, um, just ways to kind of say, okay, I can what can I do? Like if I only have four different, you know, grippers that can hold this material, I've now constrained the area of the material that could be manipulated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were doing things like stretching thermo heating and stretching thermoplastics over bucks. So, okay, now my, the area in which I can apply contact to the buck is, is now somewhat constrained, but I've, I've lended some kind of optimization or efficiency to the tooling of the robot. So I like that you had to think through all of that stuff that is like fundamentally different than preparing models for production in like any other single manufacturing technology. And kind of a sequencing thing too, right? Like, like there's, there's the spatial requirements that a robot has, which is much larger than like a purpose built CNC, right? Because you got the arm swinging around and different angles and things like that. But I would assume then too, that, the sequencing of can can it get under the thing after you've done the over the thing part of it right and so and so you really have to think through so many layers of complexity there to you disabuse them of the idea that it's also like this infinite build envelope around the robot it's actually you know you're still constrained there are always constraints um but there are always opportunities within those constraints yeah this is why like in star wars like the drones just float through the air and they're very tiny and they can do things 360 all the way around them right like that's the ultimate uh, you know the vision of of where this could go, but right now, yeah, you, you, you're this thing is big. It's heavy. It's on the floor. It's it's got to be supported. It's got cantilevered weight. It's got so many. There's so many requirements there. Yeah, I remember yep. seeing Bjarka's uh, proposal with Heatherwick to do the Google thing, and they they had the idea of crab bots, right? And it was like these. Yeah, whatever. Ha- <laughs> whatever happened to that idea? That's like I need to like find that again. Yeah, the- <laughs> I forgot about that. Crabots. That that was a hot word around the studio for quite a while after after yeah. that thing came out. On. Also, totally fake technology. Architects yeah. love to do that with. Uh, was it Wolf Pricks who has like all these images of like robots on like scissor lifts? And I'm like, right. what? <laughs> it's not a thing. Can't do that. That doesn't seem odd at all. Yeah, that's no, okay. Dream, dream big. Dream architects. Dream, dream big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay. So now what I'm thinking about is is you've gone from tool user right back in the beginning to mm. tool builder, right? Which is like scripting and, and coding and, and things like that to again, like tool user, but actually having to design the pathways that the thing does. Right. So it, it it's interesting because like the, the tool pathing is another level. Like I've, I've made tools before to make things in my, yeah. in my garage. And I think there's something incredibly satisfying about that in the real world I also think there's something incredibly satisfying about building tools that other people use in the digital world. This is another level because you're actually designing the thing so that 
the tool can do its job. I think that's a, a really interesting kind of layer of abstraction that not very many people think about because it's like it's like the iPhone, right? Apple also went through, and any company, it doesn't matter, had, had to go through all of the work to design how the machine was going to make the, the new machine. Like they have to design all of that. I think that's really interesting as a, as a conceptual thing. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if this is totally related, but it makes me think about, you know, we, we talked about, you know, what medium you're, you're designing in. And, and this was always a big conversation as we were figuring out how to educate architects at, at Pratt with, with David Erdman in, in particular, and also came up when, when Greg Glenn had visited and, and lectured there and thinking about mediums as, as a framework or a platform. And, you know, part of it is kind of like systems thinking it, you know, it runs the risk of like fetishizing, like you end up with students showing like a grasshopper script or like the code. Yeah. But the idea is they are designing a system that can accommodate lots of ways of, of designing. They're no longer doing a drawing, they're designing the pencil or they're no longer designing the pencil. They're, they've set up a, a drawing implement factory or whatever, however meta you want to get. And I yeah. think that talking about this a lot with Andrew Human as well. I mean, Hypebar is a, is a platform for kind of democratizing this this design intelligence in the form of like web distributed or cloud distributed algorithms um, and, you know, jump cutting to, to spot. It's this kind of platform for moving sensors through, through human purposed environments and bringing automation into environments that, you know, have traditionally been inhospit- inhospitable. I knew I shouldn't try that word. Uh, <laughs> difficult, uh, <laughs> difficult to do. Yeah, I you you said the magic word. I think it's a perfect segue because to me the next level of kind of this this path that you've charted is now you you're part of a, a company that builds a platform, right? Spot the the robot is a platform. And to me, again, like just to kind of go back to the the Apple analogy of like the iPad, when I think when Steve Jobs came out and showed it off, he's like, I don't know what you guys are gonna do with this, but we can't wait to find out. Are you guys kind of taking that? that point of view with spot because obviously you do have some ideas and you guys have already you've partnered with trimble you've partnered with several different people and you've got a different payload attachments for spot but it also seems like sky's the limit like you tell us what what cool things you can think about to do with this thing yeah i mean if you if you take like a the kind of the overall view of, of boston dynamics as a company right um it started as the leg lab founded by our now chairman, Mark Raber, uh, first at Carnegie Mellon and then over to MIT in the 80s. Um, that spun out into Boston Dynamics. So there, there's been, you know, geez, like 30, 30 to 40 years of kind of work that have gone into making legged machines that, that can actually function in the real world outside of the lab. Um, when I was, and, and then of course, the pressure to, to commercialize, you know, moving from from Google, where it was kind of research centric, to, to SoftBank, which is which is looking to get a return on investment, and you know, of course, everybody wants the technology to be relevant and useful. So there, there was an initial process of discovery, and I remember I was at WeWork as a construction researcher, and you know, about half of my time was spent thinking about industrialized construction and you know, moving unitized and prefabricated construction offsite uh, for efficiency, which is you know a really important thing to try to do. And then the other half was thinking about how to get better job site data to, to manage construction projects. We had acquired 
field lens, a construction management software application, yeah. and we had acquired several general contracting arms who did not have great data mm. when they came in. Like you know, many GCs suffer from this. So yeah, you know, we had a lot process. of it's it, it. That's a hard yeah. thing to do. Yeah, it's so messy. I mean, so we were you know we're a data driven company or trying to be one at least, and. We had supers and assistant supers on our sites going around with Rico Theta cameras and then like figuring out how to upload that data to, to field lens. But, you know, it wasn't good enough and it wasn't it wasn't robust enough for the for the level of data capture we really needed. And the level of data capture required, you know, now to drive some more kind of advanced technologies like, you know, anything CB model based or, or AI based that requires clean and consistent and, and large volumes of of data. So, you know, I was trying a bunch of different mobile robots and it started like early on when I first joined in like 2017 of just kind of saying, okay, well, we know that we can't effectively fly drones indoors with, with like camera payloads, even though that's a really great way to capture data outside. Um, and, and in my, like, I don't have it anymore, but somewhere there's like an initial diagram that's like legged robots are too exotic for this. Um, or it seemed to be mm-hmm. and i was like okay it's going to be wheeled or treaded so let's test several types of these and we did and a shocker they can't get very far on a construction site whether yeah. it's from an obstacle something on the floor the stairs anything yeah. right yeah this, these environments are so chaotic and um, they change all the time right so yeah you you kind of cons- constantly have to adjust how to get over that obstacle it's not going to be the same problem to be solved day after day it's it got to be different yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, and half the slab is flooded one day and then, you know, half the slab is for material staging the next day. And right. It's just, it's, it's pure chaos. Yeah. Um, it's a great place to, to test robotic autonomy because if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. Right. And then in 2018, I think it was the summer of 2018 or something like that. Uh, Boston Dynamics releases a video of spot robots moving around Japanese construction sites. And I like lost my mind. I saw that one. Yeah. 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 Um, Going like up and the down day the stairs that, and yeah. Yeah. The day that video came out, I went to like Dave Fano and like everyone who would listen to me. And I was like, we got to do this. We got to do this. And we kind of talked about it a little bit and it, you know, or wait, am I remembering the story right? Yeah, no, that's right. I think I had, I think we had kind of tried to look into it before, but without a lot of passion. And then this was the thing that really lit a fire under my ass. So we took a train up to Boston and we talked to Rob Plater and Michael Perry. Um, uh, and I had Tim, my colleague, uh, boss at the time, Tim Dumitrate with me. And we, and we signed on as like a very, very like pre-early adopter, early adopter and started testing spot on our sites. And I was looking for three things. So it was like, can this robot navigate my site? Does it have the mobility to move through this site? Um, can it then do it autonomously? So is it repeatable? Um, can it capture data, like 360 photographs, which is what's important to us at the time. We were also doing some laser scanning stuff. And can we take that data and use the spot SDK as well as our own SDK for field lens to uh, upload that data to field lens? And by the way, this is like the third robotic integration I think we had done with field lens at the time. So shout out to that team for being so forward thinking um for what is now a a much more common idea i think for autonomous data capture so we were able to do all of that in basically like a two-week trial run and like yeah there were there were some pitfalls and literal falls um but we did it and i was like oh my god this is you know this is the future 
of bringing automation onto construction sites. This, this will substantially impact the way we do work in the field and, and the ability to bring automation into a place that has been antagonistic to automation forever, right? Um, so I was really excited about that. And it also kind of aligned with this other thing that I had been thinking about a lot, which is from the earliest days, I had been really excited about this linear design to delivery process. Like, you know, I am the master builder. And <laughs> yes. All intelligence is contained within my, you know, grasshopper script. And I have overlooked nothing. It's a modern Howard Rourke. Yeah, right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I admit to being interested in those things when I was 16, but I did, I did get educated and move on. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a diss to the objectivists listening out there. Take that, Ayn Rand fans. Come at me on Twitter. But, um, you know, I really began to question that idea because at WeWork, we were, my God, I mean, for all of the distractions happening, that's kind of the level of, of Adam Newman and such. Um, we were doing some really incredible things that, you know, continue to be about 10 years ahead of where I think a lot of other people are right now. Um, a lot of that was through vertical integration and we were able to get to the point where bespoke design automation tools could deliver bespoke information to both our factory floor and our job sites. And we were really kind of closing the loop on, on all of that and, and getting really close, but there were still these, you know, there were still these really kind of painful gaps. And a lot of those gaps had to do with the, you know, intelligence and experience encapsulated in the, in the subcontracted field trades, you know, layout and carpentry and things like that. Things that are easy to overlook, but, you know, absolutely critical to the successful delivery of, of any construction project and i i started to see that this kind of like macho like we're just gonna like force this process in a kind of one-way vector and like magically 3d print this building from this like in, you know incredible bim um i was like it just doesn't work that way mm -hmm. there has got to be a feedback loop there's got to be more access to real time as built field information for the designers to work off of. It was also very educational to work on construction projects that were being completed in like three to four months Yeah, and working at this pace where it was like, you'd get sales information and you'd start designing before demo even started. Like, mm -hmm. like the lease wasn't even like, we had this really interesting system geared for speed where like you'd get to a certain gate where it's like, there's a fair chance we might sign the lease. And it was like, go, go, go like start designing the building, use the automation tools, like lay it out yeah. relative to the floor plate, da, da, da. So eventually we'll get the as-built information. And at that time, we'll just be correcting the model to that. Um, and that was really cool to see. But, you know, there were still gaps in the effectiveness of that. And, and part of it was just like, we need a constant stream of data from the field being served up to the designers. This became like very apparent in COVID when it's like, oh, Sorry, architects doing CA work, like now you can right. barely get on, on site. But right. just the idea that anyone could have virtual access and, and eyes on site for this remote data and that you could have real-time as-built information, or at least the data coming in, not mm -hmm. necessarily the technology to properly ingest and process. It's a huge amount workflow. as well, right? I mean, yeah. It's too much. There yeah. aren't many tools for it. That's why right. I'm very like uh, bullish about things like Avere. Um, mm -hmm. Also, some XWE workers there. Shout out to them. But um so yeah, like it really became about like my whole career up until this point has really been about driving the influence of the designer by virtue of 
a data rich model further and further and further into the process and have more and more control in theory. Um, this is before I learned about, you know, contracts and such and architectural practice. And then, you know, was humbled several times over mm-hmm. and then realized like one is like, I have to get out of the design bid build world. Mm-hmm. There has to be an entrepreneurial business model that lets me experiment. So that's like leaving traditional architectural practice for WeWork. And then mm-hmm. two is like, there has to be, it's like, no matter how vertically integrated you are, if you don't establish some kind of robo- robust, like data capture program and feedback program into the design and documentation process you're you're really gonna you're gonna miss out you're gonna fail in certain ways and and for me the way to have the most impact in that respect was to was to join the team at boston dynamics was Mm -hmm. to like try to contribute very directly to the success um of this new breed of robot um specifically on job sites and you guys did have a reality capture team but they can only be in one place at one time or, you know, however yeah. big that team is, were they excited yes. about the possibility of this as augmenting their team or, or the, you know, the company at large, or were they more about, I would imagine <laughs> I'm speculating here, but like, like contractors yeah. are very kind of like, what's that thing doing on my job site? I, I could imagine there could be some of that too, from a, from a team whose, whose livelihood could be kind of, you know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. This. I mean, we, we had those conversations up front and I, one of the nice things about moving from, architecture practice to WeWork was I no longer had to argue about the value of technology. Mm-hmm. It was assumed at WeWork yeah. that you would be throwing every, every bit of technology at the problem. Also we were doing, you know, before, before the bad times came, I mean, the, the work we were doing was doubling year over year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, you, you had to adapt each year and adopt new technologies or else there was just no, it wasn't, could keep up. Yeah. yeah it's crazy Absolutely. yeah can't believe we did what we did um in retrospect but um yeah we had those conversations with the scanning team but the scanning team is also again talking about you know the intelligence of kind of each specialist like they knew that just capturing all of that data wasn't the whole story yeah and this is something i am still directly contending with you know they they're like okay well you can capture all the scans and you can automate that. No one's going to, we talk about this with uh, Adam Davis and, and, and Martha um, at Foster and Partners on their applied research and development team. And, you know, they're talking about like, we don't, no one thinks that like using a robot to scan a building one time is faster or easier than sending people in. Mm-hmm. The point of it is the repetition. The point is that you want this yeah. information on a kind of daily basis. And you can do that with spot, you know, you can operationalize spot in that way and you can get that data on a daily basis. But what do you do with all of it? It's like, oops, we solved that problem. Now what do we do with, with all of that data? Because yeah, you, if you collect it, it's not enough. You just can't like, yeah, yeah. You have to register it. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is some post-processing there. I mean, those algorithms are getting faster. You can do that in the field. Like, you know, you Trimble field link, app i can download the data from spot and i can register it right then and there Mm -hmm. um you know there are continuously registering devices that are slightly less accuracy but they they give you the registered cloud as the output like less worried about that part Mm -hmm. more worried about what are you doing with that data right so you know what is the point of all this at at WeWork, we were making sure that our ec models were correct so we weren't putting the desk in the middle of a column because Mm -hmm. the desk was our financial unit Mm -hmm you lose a desk you lose a lot of money right and you know you can there are different ways of looking at that in in similar types of design processes so 
you know, you'd bring in the point cloud, you'd import it into Revit. It would be heavy and hard to view. Mm-hmm. You'd basically be viewing it like superimposed onto your onto your Revit model. Yep. And then you just nudge things, right? Oh, okay, the column is an inch off. I'll nudge that over. The wall's a little bit off. I'll nudge that over. <laughs> you can't do that every day. And there's nowhere to like store it and it's hard to view. And so there are all these issues. So it's kind of like, okay, well, what are you trying to do if you're doing it on a daily basis? Well, you're trying to understand what's been placed and if it's been placed correctly. Mm-hmm. And then you can use that information to do all sorts of other things. You can, you can sequence people on site in a more efficient way. So they're not wasting time. You can stage the site ahead of time for those trades. You can automate payments to, yeah. to subs based on work complete. Right. There are all sorts of things you can do. That's where you start to get into the actual ROI calculations. But first, you just need to say, like, yes, this thing has been placed. And yes, it was placed in the, in, the, in the correct spot. There's nothing unexpected. So really what you care about is not all of these point clouds, which are, like, kind of cool the first couple times, but then you get sick of them. And they're big and unwieldy. It's like you care about a report that gives you pertinent information. So I mentioned Avere. You know, that's the point of that, right, is to associate, you know, the portions of point clouds with their respective like Revit or Navisworks elements and then to say like, yes, I can verify that this has been placed, but Hey, by the way, it's like two inches off. Is that a big deal? You know, bring that stuff to your attention. So, so hopefully, you can, yeah, you can be a little proactive about <laughs> the RFIs that are coming. Right. Yes. And then you just have like a dashboard of like what's going on on your project. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a small thing, right? Like what's going on, but it's really hard to know. And yeah. you spend a lot of extra time figuring out what's going on. And like most projects don't get delivered on time. Yeah. And there's, there's, so it's just any improvement you can make to the management of that is going to help you beat that. I could see architects still being kind of like, what's the point? Because like most architects aren't responsible for as-built drawings, right? So, or as-built models. And they're not, it's so interesting to me to kind of watch practice and how little value someone's time holds. So it's like, yeah, yeah they, they can, <laughs> yeah. they can do CA, they can do change orders they can do off rfis all day you know if it's just not something that's really taken a huge uh there's not a lot of respect paid towards people's time still in yeah the i you know it would fix the architecture industry overnight if you could if you could only pay your employees hourly but let's not get into that um <laughs> so yeah labor is cheap um this is why i don't fixate on on the value of automation in terms of labor hours labor is very cheap yeah. whether it's on the design side or the construction side. You know, but I can see why on. you guys are, are really honing in on construction. Like that's your job, right? Is to talk to construction people. And it yeah. seems to me like there's a huge amount of value that they can it, directly attribute to the bottom line immediately. Yes. It's the general contractor is the one who's ultimately responsible for delivering that project on time mm-hmm. and for doing the handoff to the owner. Mm-hmm. It is a world of conflicting incentives. The idea is to try to raise the sea level for everyone involved and make sure that we can get some more alignment there, whether it's through risk sharing or just market pressure where enough subs are doing the right thing that the other subs kind of have to go along with it. But the truth is, is that I might be a sub who makes money off of underbidding and change ordering to death. Yeah. And that's like actually my business model. And I am incentivized by the market to operate that way. So I feel very fortunate that we have a a robot that is a direct benefit to the GC because I feel like the incentive and the opportunity is, is a lot more obvious. Create some accountability. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates conversation overall too, with, with the trades on site and with the architect. I, 
I still hold architecture near and dear to my heart. I'm very critical of the way that it's practiced and, you know, try to be creative in, in ways of making, making that better. Um, it was really great to work with Foster and Partners in that respect. Um, there are some opportunities there. You know, it's a quite, like, do you want to get in the business of better as-built? Do you want to be involved in, in the handoff? What services could you offer with respect to, you know, rem- better remote CA, mm-hmm. you know, digital twin type models, models that are augmented both kind of in four dimensions and with like sensor information? on top of geometric information and, and typical metadata materials, tag tracking with RFID, blah, 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 blah. It, it very much makes the most sense for the GC. I'm not arguing that, but what I'm saying to architects is like, do you want to get in on this a little right. bit or you just want to be ready when it becomes normal? <laughs> yeah. Or do you want to keep playing with, with, you know, robot arms and your Pratt course taught by Brian? You know, I, f- I feel like I've contributed a little bit to, to some of the, um, <laughs> to some of the, of the distractions in the way that I think the architecture world sees robotics again, as a means to extend design intent through direct, you know, file to machine control model driven delivery, but that's not really the way that that delivery works. I I think architects are going to be best suited to think about what would it mean for my design and documentation process? If it were augmented by real time construction site, information are there services i could build around that or at the very least could i make more profit when i bill for this i mm-hmm. mean again like there there isn't a huge amount of pressure on architects for well opinion here right like I, there's not as much pressure as there should be to deliver more efficiently because so many architects are underpaid severely mm-hmm. underpaid you, you also asked me like you know, some people come back into architecture after trying different things. Like, I don't want to go back to that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was abusive. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, not to generalize. There are some really forward-thinking practices out of there that kind of respect their employees' time. But it's easy when you're under pressure to fall back into these old patterns of working, you know, 80 hours a week, yeah. but being paid for 40. And at least track that internally, like at least like do a speculative exercise on like, how much would this have actually cost us and and understand how unsustainable everybody's time card is fiction, man, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, the architects go, you know, protesting to Autodesk about charging them too much for Revit. And I'm like, well, okay, but, you know, look inward a little bit too, maybe like, I think, I think it's a much bigger and deeper conversation that is fundamental to the way these businesses are run. So again, like, can you optimize your time better? Can you better leverage? I mean, architecture is such a human resource driven business, right? Yeah. It's all about the time and talent of these designers. Can you actually make their lives easier by giving them better data to design to like, why are they like, why am I waiting for an RFI like three months later? Right. Like, what is that? That's a very strange process. It's a very reactive. I understand process. why yeah. it is the way it is because of contracts, risk, blah, blah, blah. But let's question that. Yeah. Okay, so how do you get more of these robots into... I, you want to attract architects to this. You want to get, have them become early adopters. I'm sure there are some, but what does it take to get into to, to having a spot, walking around the firm so that it can actually be the thing that we put out on the job site? Yeah, I mean, I think in all practicality, it's about you know finding architects who have strong relationships with GCs. 
because they're going to learn it has from to be the a GCs partnership first and foremost. Yeah. yeah because you know the gc is the one who's incentivized to purchase the robot and to manage and own the robot but you know if you have that relationship with them you could at least get an idea of the types of data that you could be pulling from that mm-hmm. um and you one could imagine if a robot is 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 remotely a remotely accessible you know walking computer on site like i the architect stakeholder could log into it and go look at something i need to go look at and then i could you know turn that control we call it hijacking the robot this is an actual feature like you can kind of trade off who is who is controlling the robot but i recognize that it's difficult to share equipment things like that but i think like with everything else it would take a kind of shared risk and and collaborative approach with mm-hmm. another stakeholder to truly benefit from that now that said these robots aren't so expensive mm-hmm. right you know the base cost of a spot is is 74.5 and yeah there are bells and whistles on it that could take it up to six figures it's a lot of money for for some firms but there's some large firms out there that could see that as a reasonable investment mm-hmm particularly because that is a one-time cost Mm -hmm. and now you can get recurring revenue through the services that are offered through that robot so can you pass that along with billing now this is challenging and the potential savings right right? based on the things that you're saying yeah yes potential potential savings but also architects are like can i bill for this um because we we tend to get caught in this bizarre loop uh i I saw this when i was on the design technology team at Woods bagot where it's like now we're augmenting our design process with with design automation, but we're not charging for that. Now we're augmenting it with with augmented reality and providing like apps and experiences for the client, and you're still not really charging for that. And mm-hmm. doing, and it's like we keep architects are so inventive and innovative, and they're always bringing in new technology, and they're always kind of improving like the delivery. But it just seems to manifest itself in like more work you're doing mm-hmm. for the same or less amount of money as, as like margins continue to get chained away. So that's that's kind of the question. I don't have a great answer for that, but like, you know, a way of how do you impose your will in those situations to demonstrate that, hey, there is enough additional value here that this is something I can I can bill for. How do you how do you convince everyone? How do you convince an owner that I'm going to give you a completely 100% accurate handoff. How do you convince them that that's important? They would have had to have gone through some bad handoffs in the yes, past to be right. like, yes, if you can guarantee that, please. Right. And I think part of the issue, and I, I think I saw this in my time in architecture, is it's hard to build lasting relationships because, again, of the way like design bid build manifests itself in these different stakeholder teams. Every time you do a new project, you might be working with a new structural engineer. Yeah, rebuild trust, yeah. Yeah. And so it's hard to really like build the same way it's hard to learn from each building product because they change so mm-hmm, much. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to build those those kind of, yeah, like what you said, build trust and and build off of that and find better ways to, to collaborate and kind of learn together and understand what's valuable and what's not. It's kind of like, what's the baseline? It's, it's hard to keep track of the baseline because every parameter changes from one project to the next. It is a sticky problem. So what's next for Spot? I mean, you guys have uh, payload options, things like that. Where, where obviously there's tons of training going on. You're trying to get it on more job sites. Where, what's the short term? Yeah. So I mean, um, this year was all about you know the early adopter program for me, working with you know a couple dozen GCs and some developers in the AEC space, and you know on the side of the end operators at the GCs, understanding 
the robot's performance in their environment, um, the robot autonomy performance as that environment changes, and also their operational concerns about, you know, security and managing the robot on the site. You know, all those little things that are required for that to to deliver reasonable value to them to keep working with the robot. And, you know, some things are a no-brainer. It's like the mobility is always a home run. Um, other things like, can I secure this robot at the site overnight? Mm-hmm. And can it be self-charging? You know, those solutions are coming next. So in the new year, we will be offering, uh, it's actually available for sale now, if you want to pre-order it, but we'll be offering a self-charging dock. And, you know, one thing that means is there is no more kind of limit on, there was always this kind of hard 90 minute limit. Like I have to go in, I have to intervene as a user and I have to Mm -hmm. swap out the battery. Mm -hmm. So even if there are other, even if I can go do something for an hour and a half and come back, which is valuable, really what I want is a robot that's just like always doing stuff without, without my direct involvement, but just my passive supervision. So, you know, the doc gets you that, but I think more importantly is it gives you a robot that's always on. You know, this robot is always just sitting there powered on waiting for instruction. Mm-hmm. So if I want to, again, I'm an architect and I, you know, I'm working with the GC and then I have access to this thing and I have a network connection to the robot and I just really need to see something like, has the plumbing gone up, you know, in this wet wall yet? And, you know, when can I expect to start drywalling? All sorts of questions you might ask. Um, did this thing get placed correctly? And you could just kind of teleoperate the robot just take it over there get a look or you're running you know scheduled and repeatable missions which is like every morning i'm gonna scan and every evening i'm gonna you know do my job walk with with 360 photo so the dock is a is a fundamental kind of hardware shift that will extend autonomy in a lot of really interesting ways and i think it gets us toward this for me the end game is i don't think a construction site will ever be lights out the way that is easier to imagine for like factories and warehouses and logistics. Um, But I do think you could have a lights out shift Mm. and I think it could be a very symbiotic relationship between Mm -hmm. human workers and the robots. And it's going to be spot and like several other types of robots, you know, spots not going to be purpose built for like every little thing. I think there'll be just as many types of robots and machines on site as there are types of, you know, types of people doing different work on site. So all of that could happen primarily overnight assuming you're not running three shifts of construction this does happen yeah yeah um but we're assuming there's there's an open night shift and then the robots are doing a lot of the heavy lifting and that and what they're doing is they're capture they're taking a snapshot of the exact condition they're feeding that into all of your digital systems that you know get you ready for the next day so you can basically get you know here's my list of orders for the day Mm -hmm. based on what was done yesterday i don't have to put a lot of like time or effort into preparing that information, which is a huge part of like a super PM's job. Um, and I can, I can just get to work right away and I can do that work. And, you know, that might be augmented or assisted by robots during the day, but then, you know, rinse and repeat. Um, and, you know, with the, with the addition of the arm, we're even starting to look into, you know, the arm for me is, is most obviously valuable freaky going into hazardous <laughs> environments. It's freaky. Yeah. <laughs> it scares people a little bit, yeah. but, yeah, I think you can go in hazardous environments, you can mm-hmm. flip switches, you can press buttons. It's really important for industrial customers. In construction, you know, there are all sorts of future applications, you know, 
that that involve manipulation or even marking and layout but like i like the idea that you could do a little bit of like staging move some things out of the way mm. um it's got go through closed doors right i mean yeah. that's one yes. of the yeah yeah so just like stairs were really important again you have to take these challenges head on you can't mm-hmm. like pretend they don't exist so, yeah. okay i need a robot that can go into a building all right well it needs to go up and down stairs so okay we solved that uh, we're continuing to make that better um what's the next thing doors right yeah. so that was the origin of the the arm's been around just as long as the spot project really um and was originally conceived uh to be able to to pull open the door and, and move through that so you i always joke you can still lock your doors um so as long as you don't buy the the lock picking package from Boston <laughs> dynamics you should be okay um that's awesome but yeah so you know i I focus more on the self-charging aspect than the arm aspect for the construction customers, mm-hmm. just because I like to be very deliberate about like, this is the next thing that it's adds really practical. Yeah. Yeah. We have to be practical with this. It's, yeah. it's so easy. I've worked in an innovation group. I work with lots of innovation groups, you know, it's so easy for them to cycle through all the latest and greatest technologies and to not see like a meaningful impact. Mm-hmm on the work just okay that was cool i did a little vr you know i did a little bit of this a little bit of that but like it doesn't really you know impact the workers in the field like we need to focus on what's practical and what's impactful and we need to stay humble about you know i was hired because of of my expertise in construction but you know i i try to be on sites it's hard with covid but i try to be on sites as much as possible Mm -hmm. because you know we're learning everything from the customer in terms of how to make this more valuable well, I have to say you're a little late to the game with the charging because like the only robot that I own is my Roomba in the kitchen and it, it's had that for a while, you know? Yeah. You would not, <laughs> you would not believe yes. And, and good, like cliff avoidance and things like that. You would not believe the amount of times I've been challenged based on the, the functionality of a Roomba. Yeah. And so first, first and foremost, the Roomba is an incredible product. It is. There are very few robotic products that have survived like 99.9 percent of them all fail and they're you know the Roomba is like one of the best examples there's like drones in construction maybe like the Sony Ibo or the Husqvarna automower but like the Roomba is like the gold standard for like (laughs) a useful functional robot product it's not it's purpose-built it's not too fancy it's got just the right amount of technology it It solves the the problems yeah yeah it's a great story. Like there's so much fascinating reading about the fact that like, I don't know if it uses suction now, but like the fact that it like didn't use suction originally, it turned out that wasn't needed. Um, like it, it's such a great story. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. So I try not to get too defensive when people are like, why is this little robot vacuum, you know, able to do these things? And I'm like, well, can it go, can it walk up and down stairs? You know, I'll get like super, super. Can you flip it over on its back and have it, you know, flip itself right side up? Uh, yeah, we <laughs> when I was a customer in 2018 2019 I was like I need self-charging. I need self-charging. I need self-charging. But I get it. You know, we want to when we solve a problem, it has to work with a complicated machine with a legged robot. It has to be robust. It has to like it can't just work some of the time. It has yeah. to work all of the time. Mm-hmm. And it has to be in really really challenging environments. So the IP rating needs to make sense. You have to be able to like drop it. You have to mm-hmm. be able to have the robot crash into it a thousand times. It's tough. It's a tough engineering job. But yeah, luckily I work with, you know, some of the most brilliant people in the world and we solve that bit 
by bit by bit and we march onward so so you said that the room was one of your your favorite things and i think this wouldn't be a holiday extravaganza show (laughs) without a final final quick segment i i really appreciate your time um so so you you like the Roomba um obviously cats can ride Roombas maybe maybe cats someday yeah. will ride spots um but I like where you're going and and I and I love how you kind of collect I and I only know this by following your Instagram stories like all of the crazy stuff that's going on in robotics like I think you you talked about this kind of robotic fetishness like that that to yeah. me is there's so much cool stuff there it's just fun to look at and fun to follow along Yeah what is your favorite movie robot of all time so final oh, holiday extravaganza question for brian oh Ringling. man Joe, that is such a tough one let me let um, me throw some out here so so obviously okay. there's the star wars series right you got you got the bb8s you've got the the r2d2s the c3po's but then there's like the terminator right there's right i think now i'm gonna hold this one back because you might say this one uh iron giant <laughs> right uh yeah. the hal 9000 that minimal minimal robot right mm, classic yeah. so so uh i'm I, I i'm holding one back because i think you might say it and i'm gonna let you say it if it's true but go for it does tv count too sure or does yeah. it need to be? okay i'll well, here I'll, I'll talk about like the two robots that made me like jump up and and scream on on tv which was one was in uh the beginning of season two of westworld when there was this mm. uh kind of like humanoid bipedal construction robot um, if you watch what it does, it's like climbing the side of a building and like running a piece of cable up the side. I'm not quite sure what, you know, what it's doing there. And it also died, you know, spoiler, it dies too <laughs> young. Um, so that, that one made me kind of like, like shout and stand up because there were a few funny things about it. Like, I'm always thinking about like, how do you secure a robot on site? overnight and what is the like concept of operations for that and you know the character just comes in and like unchains it with a padlock it's just like chained to a you know column or something yes. <laughs> just starts and then just starts using it as a companion um so that got me like super excited because uh, you know how often are there construction robots in popular culture mm-hmm. but um the other one was was much more recent i was watching the mandalorian mm. um have you been watching that yes i have every it's a it's a family thing right now for sure yeah, so there's that scene where they're like landing and the ship tips over and falls underwater and then the next scene it cuts to this like giant like four-legged crane. Yes. Like walking through the water and lifting this thing out and I was like this is so awesome. <laughs> this is the coolest thing. I want a spot that, that that's that big. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we want the whole spectrum of sizes of spot. We want chihuahua spot and we we also want <laughs> yeah. Like, but yes, less yappy, right? Like we want, yeah. but we also want ginormous spot as well. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> I think those are the, like, the two like of late that like really got me pumped up. I thought for sure you would say Ava from Ex Machina. <laughs> you know, I. <laughs> More Android I, than robot. Maybe. I don't know. I, th- I thought about, I thought about Ava. There's something really interesting about how manipulative yes. she was and the idea of like, the idea of not just how like intelligence needs a physical embodiment, but mm. also like how sexuality is a form of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Like, but by the same token, it was kind of this like hyper male fantasy movie. Yeah, totally slightly problematic. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I chose not to go with that one. There are some interesting, here's what I do love is when she knifes the guy. That's, yeah. that's a pretty <sighs> badass scene. 
that was crazy robots work together um to to knife jaw jaw dropped it's like yeah it wait is it it's over what (laughs) yeah um and i love how they just the the other dudes just like left locked in the room there is something like you know it's so many spoilers let this be a lesson uh, to you humans (laughs) yeah just i it was yeah that that was like there was something a little bit satisfying about that but yeah that movie that movie i don't think ages super well mm-hmm. i'm afraid mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and it's not as fun as a, as an r2d2 or a bb8 or whatever so. not not quite not quite yeah. um yeah and it's also just like it's yeah technologically preposterous too but you know suspension of disbelief and such exactly well it's it's entertainment yeah, yeah. well thank you so much for spending your time i would love it if you could just drop some links here on people where, where can they find you follow you on twitter uh boston dynamics yeah. etc yes i'm pretty easy to find you know my name brian ringley all one word on twitter on instagram i'm on linkedin um you know you can contact me you know for business things through the boston dynamics contact form or you can shoot me a message on linkedin or yeah you can see my weird robot fetish posts of you know furby and how much people love their their automowers, which by the way, the automower thing that I love so much, like not to digress, is this emphasis on like the leisure of automation. Yes. Like we this just is, don't This is what that. the promise of it has always been, right? Like And and for some reason that story is so easy to craft when it's lawn work, but so hard to craft elsewhere. Elsewhere it becomes this kind of problematic but important discussion about right. like job loss and things like that. But when it comes to and this is it, right? The uncompensated domestic labor at home. Rosie the robot life. from, from exactly. the Jetsons, man. You know, yeah. so the Roomba, the automower. I mean, I think it's really it's really clever. Um, and you know, I think I think hugely promising and we'll see a lot a lot more there. I live in Brooklyn, so I have no no space for an automower and no, no one to speak to of. Mow, yeah. But um, and you know, drones are illegal here too. I've got to move to the country. I feel like you can't Midwest fully like embrace robots in Brooklyn. I'm you need acreage. Yeah. I mean, and in California, <laughs> yeah. like lawns are illegal. So yeah, we're, yeah, you can't so, do it. Well, I appreciate yeah. that digression. So thank you so much <laughs> for spending the time with us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. Hey listeners, before you turn this thing off, I wanted to say thank you for six great months of podcasting. I've made this show for you, and I truly hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. I think this type of open conversation is valuable to the AEC community, especially with how technology is rapidly changing it, which is obviously the whole premise. Holiday breaks are a great time to catch up on previous episodes, so head over to trxl.co slash podcast or to gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L m-e-d-i-a dot com it's gable without the e of course you can simply search in your favorite podcast player for troxel i encourage you to subscribe to the show and please share it with somebody that would really help me it would help the show and it would really help the gable media network so i appreciate that if you would do that right now and lastly i have to say that one of the inspirations for this show among many was zach downey's and brian ringley's design alive podcast which I've included a link to in the show notes. They haven't recorded an episode in quite a while. Brian did mention it also during the conversation. He said that they've got some that they just might release someday. So hit him up on Twitter 
Again, links to his Twitter and everything are in the show notes and let him know that you want to hear that. So that's it for 2020. I'm really excited about 2021. I already have some great episodes recorded and queued up, which will be coming to your ears very soon. So with that, I'm signing off. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I could not and I would not do it if you weren't there. So thanks. I'll talk to you soon in 2021.